Hey science fans, I have another fantastic podcast to recommend to you guys. The Waterline Podcast. Everything you need to know about the science of water. Have we managed to develop the most sustainable irrigation techniques? Can water be the bringer of peace? Can flushing your toilet light up your house? The answer to all of these questions and many more in the Waterline Podcast which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech as part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. It's a new podcast that, uh, is, that is created to communicate the many facets of water. So please, check out an episode. I've, uh, I've checked out several. I actually went back and listened to the very first episode, which gives you a nice overview of uh, sources of fresh water all around the world, rivers, lakes, underground sources, and to see how, how delicate they are, how prone they are to contamination. This is exceptionally important stuff for our world and our future, and I highly recommend this podcast. Search Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm very excited to have the Director of Communications and Marketing for maps, Brad Burge joins me. Thank you, Brad. Thank you so much for coming by, Shane. Yeah, thanks for having me in your lovely home, your lovely mm-hmm. office. Uh, um, I go to a lot of academics' offices, and none of them have a hot tub <laughs> three feet from their office door. So. Yeah, I've been there, done that. It's all about learning. <laughs> you're, you're, you're really killing it. Um, so what what is maps? We've talked about it on the show before, but for for new listeners, sure. Uh, and uh, everybody describes it differently. So happy to explain. Um, maps is the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. Um, that's a long name. It's intentionally scientific and academic because we're trying to wedge open a space just like that for psychedelics. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's what I've been. Um, I've been in communication with you for a while now, and finally I get, got to come to the Bay Area. But this is what I've I've been I, I've been trying to take a very in in my stand up show I try to take a very scientific and what I think is pretty balanced approach to it and talk about like the descheduling and and whatnot because um, I mean I I've just if you're if you run around like in the psychedelic communities you'll you'll always run into a few people that are way out there mm. in it you know and i'm trying to but i think they're that they can be such a useful tool for so many people and there's just such an insane stigma so I, i'm glad mm. that um i'm glad that science is starting to come around once again to uh to these studies what, what's the history of maps uh maps was uh founded in 1986 so 30 years ago this is our 30th anniversary um, I was three years old, uh, so um, uh, I, I myself have, have been watching maps for a, uh, a long time, as long as I've known that um, there, was a, there was an actual field of interest in these. Um, maps itself was founded 
a year after the scheduling of MDMA in the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, MDMA was scheduled in 1985 on a quote-unquote emergency basis uh, by the DEA. And uh, in um, old-school drug war DEA terms, emergency basis just means we're not going to listen to any science. Right, right. Yeah, (laughs) what was the emergency exactly? The kids, oh my gosh, the kids. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was the explosion of recreational ecstasy use uh, in the early 1980s. I didn't know that the early 80s was an ecstasy time. I Uh, thought it was... I was was too young to enjoy it. Yeah, I was was just familiar with... um, Let's see, I was... I guess when I was like 20, so yeah, I would say right around 2000 is when I remember there being... There was definitely another rise in the late 90s or so. Yeah, yeah. uh, For sure. Um, The first explosion when when MDMA became known as quote-unquote ecstasy, uh, that was in the Dallas club scene Mm. in the early 1980s. It was being sold over the counter as a substitute for alcohol because it was completely legal. Mm. Uh, And the folks down there uh, at the Stark Club uh, started promoting it there among the Dallas scene, and it spread to parties all over the planet. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, there's a great new documentary called The Stark Club uh, that's just all about that moment. Huh. So it was as, as an alternative to alcohol. So, like, that's... I have never heard of that. That's interesting. That seems... So, so people would just go to this club, like, quite often, and, like, this is what I'm doing for my weekend. Absolutely, and this was happening for a number of years. They were making millions and millions of dollars selling ecstasy. People mm-hmm. would stay all night. They might drink less alcohol. Some might drink more, unfortunately. Right. But they would have a great time, and there was this huge explosion of culture, of expressionism, and uh, uh, just sort of gender bending and experimentation, and um, all of this really cool, interesting stuff that was happening in the 80s as a result, sort of inside this club scene. And, of course, this terrified uh, the powers that be uh, running the drug war. I mean, what did they even point to? Was it was it like what was there like a couple of deaths or something? Like there that? were there were there were a couple of uh, pretty high profile ecstasy related deaths, um, overdoses, um, overheating, dehydration, things that we're still seeing. I mean, just this summer, every every summer, there's more and more deaths related to ecstasy due to the lack of uh, safety, um, lack of education, mm-hmm. uh, and just the general adulterated compounds that are circulating on the criminal market. That was happening back then too. Uh, and that's what precipitated the law enforcement crackdown. Hmm. I know a lot of people that drink, and I've drank well on MDMA before, um, and it, it's never seemed like the best idea in the world. I never had any ill effects from it, but I just know. I'm like, eh, you shouldn't do that anymore. That's stupid. What, what, what does the... Um, it, what does the research say about mixing those? Do you know anything about like what's actually happening? Um, We're still learning a lot about how MDMA is working in the body. We do know that it works strongly on the hormo- on the hormonal system. Um, so it can cause dysregulations in body temperature and the ability of the body to uh, process water and to rehydrate. Ah. Uh, alcohol also dehydrates. Right. Um, and then there's the added, uh, the added uh, problem of alcohol. Ah severely lowering inhibitions um, and just generally exposing oneself to risks. And when you combine right, that with right, MDMA right, and its feelings of empathy, you can get into some real trouble. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you're feeling all lovey-dovey. You just want to like jump off. So I don't think people actually jump off at things. I don't know. Maybe it happens once in a while. Um, <laughs> but so, so there's some high profile and then they just... So then they just made it a Schedule 1 drug, and we've talked about Schedule 1 a, a, yeah. a bit before. Yeah, it's actually a really interesting history. That first uh, year or so after it was criminalized, uh, there was a moment um, about 
couple of months period right after that 1985 scheduling uh, where it was legal uh, due to a, a, a refusal or a, 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 there was a law enforcement uh, administrator within the DEA that uh, rejected the emergency scheduling, removing it from Schedule 1 just for a couple of months. Mm. Uh, and then it was put back on and that's where it stayed ever since. There were scientists and therapists, researchers uh, from all over the planet that came to the DEA uh, in D.C. to testify, including Rick Doblin, uh, my boss, who founded MAPS, mm-hmm. um, to testify on all of the uh, research that had been done, on all the therapy uh, that was being done with MDMA and what therapists all over the planet had seen with MDMA. And, of course, all that was ignored. So was was MDMA used as therapy before it hit the streets? It was. It was. Um, oh. It was. Uh, throughout the 1970s uh, and even the early 1980s, there was a community of psychotherapists that were using MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder treatment. In the U.S.? couples counseling in the U.S., mm. yeah, in and around the Bay Area. A large couples group. counseling, of uh-huh. course. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, that mm-hmm. would be perfect for a couple. <laughs> like, I'm not even a big MDMA fan, to be honest. Yeah. I, I, it makes yeah. me, I don't like, like, super what? feel-goody kind of things. I'm more into, like, mushrooms and DMT. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's... From what you've seen. <laughs> that That is, I mean, I've, I've been, uh, you know, I've hung out with ladies on MDMA before and stuff and, and you know, girlfriends and whatnot. And definitely that, that has been a productive thing for relationships. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, there was just, uh, and of course, MDMA and LSD are a little bit different, but uh, there was recently a, a, a show on um, uh, the uh, Mad Men. Um, about a year and a half or two years ago, um, where a couple um, that were in a difficult relationship and living together uh, took LSD together. Of course, this takes place in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. LSD was also being used in therapy in the 1950s. Right. Uh, and they roll around on the floor together for a while, and they have this insight about their relationship. And one of them rolls over to the other one and says, you know what, honey, I, I don't love you anymore. And, and the woman says, me either. I think we should, I think we should not live together anymore. <laughs> And they go off and they separate and they live happy lives. And so like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like these, these, these psychedelic insights, whether it's by MDMA or LSD, it's like it's more showing the path right. forward. It's not like immediately healing the yeah, relationship. Yeah. You might decide to go your separate ways, but that's the power, you know? Right, right. Well, <laughs> it's, it's definitely, I mean, my experience of psychedelics, especially as an adult, I mean, when I was younger, I used to you know, treat it more as like a party drug or something like that, which is kind of silly. Um, kind of a waste. It, it's so much more productive as therapy, but um, it, it always I I always come away with not always, but most of the time I come away. Some sometimes I have some mushrooms. I go for a nice hike with friends or something like that. I have a pleasant time. I don't get anything out of it. Um, but a lot of times, if I just like sit and write or whatever, it's usually stuff that's just right on the cusp of my consciousness or I'll like kind of intellectually know it or like something a good friend could probably tell me about myself or a therapist could probably tell me about me, but um, it's right there. And then I just kind of see it much mm. more clearly. Mm. And, um, and, and it, it usually has a, just a much more significant lasting change. Yeah. Yeah. I think something, um, you know, to know is that, you know, psychedelics is a large class, right? You know, it's, it's, there's psilocybin, mushrooms, there's the whole tryptamine class. DMT is one of those. There's LSD, which is different but related. And then there's MDMA and its cousins and all of those. There's ayahuasca and ibogaine. There's all of these different compounds. And 
they all have very different effects, but across the board, um, they 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 tend to have this effect of of, of expanding awareness, mm-hmm. um, of bringing to light or making conscious material that was previously not so conscious, and that seems to be kind of what you're talking about with the psilocybin, kind of bringing this material. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, I mean, we talk about consciousness quite a bit on the show. We, we probably talk about non-conscious more on the show than, than consciousness because, I mean, that's the majority of the brain is non-conscious processes. Mm-hmm. Like, our yeah. consciousness is kind of the tip of the iceberg, but it's really just kind of, so, I mean, I always kind of rolled my eyes when I was younger and, and people would be like, expand your mind. But like the way to, the way that I would articulate that is is that it's it's making you just a bit more mindful in noticing some of your uh, patterns and behaviors that you just weren't mindful of and weren't uh, that they weren't a part of your conscious process and in kind of being more mindful maybe gaining control maybe not but at least being mindful you are actually expanding. This this uh, I almost spilt water all over my equipment and we're good. Um, you are actually expanding your consciousness. What the yeah. information that is available to your conscious selves, which is where we are, what we live in, this thing that we're trapped in, um, and gets uh, a little claustrophobic in this in this uh, weird <laughs> chain consciousness sometimes, and it's it's nice to expand it a little bit. Yeah, yes, psychedelic, it means mind manifesting. The term coined by Humphrey Osmond, 1940s, mind manifesting, or mm. bringing out the mind, psyche and delos, to bring that out. So again, psychedelic is not a clinical term in the sense that it doesn't describe a particular chemical class. It's more about what it's doing mm. in the process and what's happening. So I'm curious with the scheduling stuff. So, so you have like MDMA and then... When did MDA come out? Do you know? Yeah, MDMA or MDA rather, um, relative of MDMA um, was actually used and recognized in therapy before MDMA was. Um, It's actually a little bit older as far as the 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 amount of research that's gone into it and uh, the 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 amount of psychotherapy. Uh, Claudio Naranjo was uh, um, or is still a psychiatrist. Um, In the 1970s, he um, did significant therapy sessions using MDA uh, and other compounds as well. Um, MDMA uh, simply became more popular, um, largely due to, um, well, aside from its effects, um, it, it does have slightly different effects. So um, there's that. But also, it was popularized very widely by Sasha Shulgin, um, who was a chemist uh, who um, sort of rediscovered and popularized MDMA in the late 1970s uh, to his therapist friends. Um, so there was some popularization and promotion of MDMA specifically. Um, the beautiful history. So my question is, well, one, um, did MDA become, uh, was it scheduled at the same time as MDMA? It was scheduled before MDMA. Oh. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly the year. Why did that happen? Yeah, I don't know. You don't know? Uh, so um, with MDMA, isn't, isn't it easy enough for a chemist to just change the molecular structure a little bit and then just make a new drug that is unheard of and unscheduled and it sure is if you've got the equipment if you've got the knowledge then it sure is and if you have the precursors the chemical precursors to these which of course themselves are illegal 
Mm. And that's what Sasha Shulgin was doing. Um, he was uh, licensed by the DEA uh, in the 1970s to experiment, uh, to synthesize new psychedelic compounds related to MDMA and also related to tryptamine. So he synthesized himself working in a private lab in the San Francisco Bay Area, hundreds of new psychoactive compounds, and then tested them on himself and his wife and his close friends. So MDMA was just the first of these, uh, 2CB, 2CE, 2CI, this whole phenethylamine class of uh, what are now known research chemicals. Uh, many of those were invented by Sasha Shulgin working legally under the auspices of the DEA. Why were they having him do that? He was a skilled pharmacologist and inventor. Uh, he had previously consulted with them on one of the MK Ultra projects and then left because he didn't like what they were doing. Uh, and then... Uh, just retained his license and they allowed him to continue experimenting, presumably so that they could keep up with the new synthesis of novel psychoactive compounds on the expanding black market. Hmm. Huh. And so, so are there, are there lots of other classified ones that most people just haven't ever heard of or, oh, or are they absolutely. behind? The uh, list of schedule one compounds right now is an encyclopedia. Uh, of, of chemistry. You almost have to know chemistry to understand what it is they're making illegal now. Hmm. Now, by default, when a new compound comes out, if a chemist working in a lab tweaks a molecule just a little bit, so say they tweak the MDMA molecule and just make it slightly different, um, it's by default legal. Hmm. It's legal to possess, it's legal to distribute, it's legal to, man to manufacture until it's explicitly moved to Schedule 1 by an act of law. So on a weekly basis, federal government is reviewing new compounds that have been synthesized and they, that they have found or confiscated and then making them illegal. So there's usually a lag time there. Hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, how are, how are police even finding these new, they, they pull someone over and they find a drug and they test it and it doesn't test. And so then they're like, send it to the lab or something. Or yeah, like that. exactly. And they connect enough of those and um, they make them illegal. Huh? That is Interesting. And, and so, so then they just, so without research or anything, they're just like, oh, this is a new one. Let's just make that illegal. That is right the away. logic of the war on drugs. It's the assumption that all of these drugs in this class can only be used for abusive reasons and cannot be used for benefit. It's a knee-jerk reaction. We're conditioned over the last 40 years of propaganda to assume that when new psychedelics come out, somebody's going to Say no. Just say no. Just yeah. say no. I won't say no, thank you. It's like a little, a little more polite. like, <laughs> why are you gonna be a dick about it? Like, I just offered you drugs. They're trying to cool scare you. Just do. say no. Just, this is an intense situation, kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like you're just gonna alienate your peers. You yeah. could say no, thanks, thanks for your generous offer, but I'm not interested. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I so what I don't quite understand is so so. What's the difference between that and what the pharmacology industry is doing in gen? So, so I guess the pharmacology industry, it's not legal until they've done enough tests and they've vetted it enough. And that's right. And then it becomes legal. So it's, it's an illegal thing until that time. That's right. I see. I that's understand. Right. Yeah. Um, so how long, Oh, Oh, I, I wanted to know, I've been hearing so much about this stuff lately, and I don't know anything about it. I feel I feel like um, I really 
I really don't know my stuff because I, I'm not familiar with 2 CB and the other ones that you mentioned uh-huh. in that class. Yeah, and alphabet I, soup. Yeah, yeah. I, I hear a lot about them, and I have no idea what they are or what they do. Could you? Yeah, yeah. They're uh, part of the class of drugs called phenethylamines, uh, so similar to MDMA. Mm. MDMA and MDA are also within this class. And ultimately, that whole class of compounds comes from the cactus, so the original basic compound that's being manipulated there with the phenethylamine class is mescaline, mm. which comes from the peyote cactus or from the San Pedro cactus. Right. Um, if you yeah. do San Pedro, is that just mescaline then? That's that is great. just mescaline and a number of other miscellaneous plant-based alkaloids that interact with the mescaline. Mm. I did that for the first time recently yeah. and it was delightful. Yeah. Super chill. That's one of the older ones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm surprised it took me so long. Um, Ripe age of 36. I hadn't even done mescaline. (laughs) What have I been doing with my life? Um, It's not as cool as it used to be. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I just heard like everyone said so many good things about it and I never heard. Because everything else you'll hear. I mean, you'll hear so many bad trip stories about LSD and mushrooms and stuff like that. And I never heard any bad. Not that... Uh, should be careful here. I'm not promoting the use of recreational drug use and blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I know that's not what your organization's about. And I don't, I certainly don't want to like put you guys in, in a, in a bad negative light. You guys are doing science. I'm just sharing my personal anecdotes, not encouraging others. Um, so how long have you been working with, uh, with maps? Uh, it's been a really awesome seven years now. I, how how I was, did you yeah. get into it? How did you? I started as an intern. Uh, I was in grad school uh, at the time. Mm. I was at uh, UC San Diego, and uh, I was working towards a PhD in uh, science and technology studies and anthropology of science and all of that. And I was really interested in the work Maps was doing, um, turning these illegal drugs into legitimate medicines, mm. uh, and that that shift that had to happen over the political spheres, the economic spheres, the scientific spheres that had to happen to turn this concept of a drug into a concept of a medicine. Um, so I was going to sort of trace that historically. And I was like, well, how am I going to learn about what's happening here? Well, I'm going to take the anthropological approach and I'm going to go embed myself with this amazing organization uh, <clears throat> in Santa Cruz, close to my hometown and help them edit documents and that kind of thing. So I did that for a couple of years. Um, ultimately decided that, um, you know, watching the uh, sort of expansion of medical marijuana in the state, um, the great work that MAPS was doing, I no longer really wanted to work on a dissertation, um, just examining the intellectual aspects of what MAPS was doing. But I really wanted to connect with the drug policy community and learn more sort of more through action um, mm. than through studying. So just stuck around long enough that mm. got hired to do education for him. Um, and you, you were telling me before we started recording that, um, that you guys had a bit of a growth spurt recently. Well, yeah, it's been amazing. Um, 1986 to, um, uh, mid 1990s maps was just Rick Doblin. It was <clears throat> one guy, uh, with his laptop, um, trying to raise support among the research community and the therapeutic community and the government, uh, for this research. Um, so it's just a one man show for a really long time. Um, and then slowly as resources grew, as uh, more uh, regulators started approving protocols, as uh, more donors started supporting the work, um, as more headlines started coming out about the failing of the war on drugs, um, and 
the expansion of the research, just um, the resources grew. So the tools um, are continually increasing. Social media uh, has helped a lot uh, in us, uh, our ability to reach new people. Um, the um, interest of the Silicon Valley tech community um, in um, creativity and consciousness expansion. Um, so we're getting more and more support. Uh, and as a result, we're able to grow our infrastructure so that we can thereafter reach more people, raise more funds. Um, we've raised uh, about $36 million in the last 30 years um, for psychedelic and medical marijuana research. And now, um, because of this expansion of research that we have to do, um, this last phase of research uh, to get MDMA approved for use in psychotherapy for PTSD, we have to raise another $30 million over the next five years. So we're expanding greatly. <clears throat> when I started at MAPS seven years ago, uh, we had seven people on staff. Now we have 27. Um, so we're a very, very quickly growing organization. It really feels kind of like a psychedelic startup. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it seems like uh, this is the time. I, I feel like it's really making a comeback. Science and psychedelics are starting to. I mean, I I'll I'll talk off the air with um, a lot of scientists that I interview, and if I feel comfortable enough, I sometimes share that. I uh, get into psychedelics here and there. I don't make much of a secret about it. I do a show about <laughs> it when I stand up and tour the country talking about psychedelics. But um, it it definitely seems like um, I was expecting it to be more of a taboo to um, like the scientific community than it is. Most people are like, oh, yeah, you'd be surprised how, how yeah. many people are interested. Yeah, there's a little corner of uh, researchers, um, you know, old school psychiatrists and so on that are still hesitant, you know, still been conditioned by the war on drugs and just kind of don't want to go close to it, um, don't want to uh, be associated with the stigma. But right. um, increasingly, um, there's just a lot of interest. It's being seen as a professional opportunity. I talk with students uh, who are deciding to go into therapy training to become therapists because they know that psychedelics are going to be available for use in therapy in the coming years, in the next six years, really, is what we're looking at. So it's, it's inspiring a lot of new people. Um, and yeah, there is less stigma. Uh, I, I think just being able to have out in the open, honest conversations about them is going a long way. Well, I... Um... <clears throat> Because the history is so strange. I, I took just like, I've been taking this brief little, um, there, there's a class on course era uh, that you can take about drug history um, online. It's free, by the way. I encourage the listeners, if you're interested, check it out. And it, I, I just watch like the, I don't do any of the homework or anything. I just watch the like, it's like five or seven minute lecture at a time over different topics. And it's, it's talking about, um, you know, Nixon was the one that initially introduced all of the scheduling. And he initially, uh, at least this is what they say on this class, and um, he initially did a lot in, um, in like, the pro-getting people treatment um, regard and then, like, quickly flipped. And, and that was, like, it was like a war on crime at first and, like... It, wanted to stop this crime stuff that drugs must be causing. But, but because there's also, if you go back far <laughs> enough, there was a time when, like, the same people that sold aspirin were selling heroin and whatnot alcohol, before there was... prohibition. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. um, so, yeah. so there was, like, some need around to schedule some of the things. And, and But 
But it was interesting because it's talking about how he he put together this big team of of like uh, scientists and different politicians and lawmakers, you know, all these different people, and they came to the conclusion that um, these drugs should be decriminalized and more effort should be um, put into education and treatment, mm-hmm. which is the finding that everyone's always when it's actually been studied everyone's always come to that conclusion and then he just ignored the whole team that he put together he just ignored all of it and then put in just this crazy harsh scheduling the thing that i don't Mm -hmm. quite understand is that i don't quite get the purpose of a a schedule one like i i get what it does and we've talked a little bit about a bit tell us just a reminder what what is a uh Schedule one drug. What does that mean? Schedule one is just defined as a drug that has a high potential for abuse and no medical use. So anything that's in that schedule, uh, heroin, LSD, marijuana, um, all very different compounds, of course, right, um, are classified as um, in that area. But um, and what and what that means is that it's near impossible to study. Yeah, it makes it very difficult to say. Not illegal to study because right. you can still technically get permission for these things. But what it does mean is that uh, there isn't any federal government funding for research. Uh, it means there's a lot of resistance um, or there has historically been a lot of resistance from major institutions, universities, research, you know, professors mm. uh, from wanting to attach their name to psychedelic right, drug right, research. Right, of and so there's that professional concern. And I think that's, that's decreasing significantly and we're going to see more of that. Yeah, yeah, I, I I had someone on and studied studies cocaine, and he was kind of telling me afterwards that it's starting to that stigma is starting to go away in universities. Yeah, which is amazing. If anything, these are tr- drugs that should be studied the most, uh, since clearly there's the most interest. Yeah, in the most risk. even cocaine, like we should be studying it more, not less. Yeah, if, if it's harmful, wouldn't you want to know that? Right. <laughs> That'd be a very good thing to know. Um, but. That's interesting. I didn't. I actually didn't know that you can't then get federal funding. I wasn't aware of that aspect of schedule. You can get federal funding into Schedule One drug research if you're looking into the harms of uh, the drugs. So um, it's interesting. You you know pointed to this Nixon commission um, where he invested all of these federal resources in in putting together this committee researching the harms of marijuana and other drugs and then they come back and say hey actually um you should go ahead and uh, make these legal yeah um so just how that 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 war on drugs just turns back around on itself there um you know in the same way with the mdma research we're doing right now um fda was um very resistant up until the mid-1990s to approving any sort of uh research into the benefits of schedule one drugs including mdma um, and when we finally submitted the application to the FDA for MDMA research that was approved, we were able to use all of the research on the order of hundreds of millions of dollars um, that had been conducted and funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, mm-hmm. federal government, into the risks of MDMA, and to use that research as evidence for why we should be able to use it in clinical trials. So right. all that evidence into the risks and the negative harmful consequences of pure MDMA in controlled settings actually showed the opposite. Right, right. And it was justification for all the clinical trials we're doing now. Hmm. Yeah, that's fine. So, so this is what I wanted to bring up. This is what is the most confusing to me about this whole ordeal is that a Schedule One doesn't mean, doesn't necessarily mean that it's more of a penalty 
for using or manufacturing, like, say, cocaine. Uh, if you have cocaine and marijuana, cocaine's a Schedule Two, I believe, right? And then um, marijuana is a Schedule One drug. But if yeah, you get busted are, with yeah. cocaine, it's the penalties are much harsher than getting busted with marijuana, which is a Schedule yeah. One. But there, there's cocaine and there's crack cocaine. So crack cocaine is Schedule One. Oh, okay. So so it's essentially the same compound, but processed in a different way. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, uh, THC um, uh, or, or, or syn- synthetic THC, which is approved for medical use, is Schedule Two, whereas marijuana is Schedule One, which contains it. So, crack cocaine sentencing mm-hmm. is the same uh, at the federal level um, as for, say, marijuana sentencing, or it's it's looked at in the same category. But yeah. but I would be in more trouble for regular cocaine than I would for marijuana, even though it's a Schedule One. Uh, like, like I don't, I don't think that the the schedules don't seem yeah. to necessarily define the, the level of penal- the, the penalty. Level of penalty. Right. And so, and so, if the level of penalty isn't increased, which and if the level of penalty is meant to deter people from doing it, and it's the scheduling itself isn't adding to that determinant, um, I don't understand what the benefit to the government would be to make something a schedule one if it's isn't it just law enforcement resources so if something is um an offense punishable by any form of law enforcement then that's um that justifies the investment of resources into law enforcement so the dea it's Mm -hmm. it's its very existence um is contingent um the bulk of its funding uh is for enforcement related to illegal drugs uh, although increasingly dea is focusing its enforcement efforts on the circulation of legal drugs prescription pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. which are circulated outside the prescription system so increasingly the dea is focusing on that as well but if something is illegal and the dea can get funding local law enforcement can get funding and funding means jobs and funding means uh, more personnel more equipment and so on um, also when something is illegal you can lock people up for it um, and if you can lock people up, you can selectively enforce. So there's an inherent racism right. and classism built into it. And then, of course, there's the prisons, which rely on the war on drugs to stay full. Yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> there's yeah. plenty of vested interests. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. of course. Yeah. It, and it's... it's, uh, it's it, that, there's such a long history of that. Like, opium. It's like, oh, we don't like these Chinese, and they're smoking opium. So let's get rid of that stuff. Right. Uh, um, this cannabis stuff, we're going to change the name to marijuana so we can associate it with these dirty Mexicans mm-hmm. that are criminals or, you know, whatever. That, that's so, so so you get that and people you just, you just trigger people's right inner inner racism yep. to, to pitch that. Um, and, and it is it is funny that it was during like the big civil civil rights movement when there was this huge crackdown on this, um, you know, mind expanding. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. The, and Nixon, our favorite topic of this conversation. It, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. He, he was a good president otherwise, but you know, this drug thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was, um, yeah, yeah that, that was an explicit effort at that time Yeah. to, to target radicals, countercultural radicals. They found a link between LSD and uh, students for democratic society. Uh, major radical group at that time. Um, also, the um, civil rights movement. There was a lot of overlap uh, mm-hmm. between the explosion of psychedelics and radical activism at that time. Um, and in fact, a recent statement from someone who was working closely with Nixon 
uh, at that time who is still alive, um, one of his key advisors, uh, has uh, stated publicly that, in fact, the explicit uh, justification for the war on drugs in the Nixon White House was the targeting of minorities and student radicals. Mm. So that's where it comes from. Yeah. Um, I mean, okay. So, I, I mean, I understand all, all of like kind of what's happening um, like behind the curtain or, or however you want to phrase that. <laughs> um, but, and, and, and think, you know, with uh, corporate prisons making money off of, uh, off of a full prison if you can get a bunch of prisoners together to teach each other how to cook meth so that when they have their felony and can't get a job anywhere else they know how to land themselves back in there i get i get like all of that kind of stuff but what what yeah. what was the actual what was like the publicized um reason for making something a schedule one like a, why like what what are they actually saying like we need to make this a schedule one because this is so dangerous. We shouldn't even study it or usually they're citing high profile deaths. So deaths that make the media uh, or emergency room visits. Mm. Um, Emergency room visits is an interesting statistic too, since we're talking about how the war on drugs justifies itself. Yeah. Is that if somebody gets admitted to an emergency room uh, and they're tested uh, for compounds for what's in their blood, um, they come up positive with, say, alcohol and marijuana, they get counted as both an alcohol statistic for somebody in the emergency room for alcohol and a marijuana statistic. Yeah. So that, that stat will say somebody came into the emergency room on marijuana, <laughs> which leads us to believe that that was the reason for their admission. Right, right. That is yeah. some shady stuff. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then also on a similar note, when you hear statistics about people who um, are in treatment, <clears throat> quote, in treatment for drug abuse, um, always ask how many of those people in treatment are there by choice and how many in were referred by law enforcement, which is to say people are given a choice of you can go to jail, pay a huge fine, or pay a huge fine and go to treatment. People are going to choose treatment. Right. Of course. Yeah. So yeah, they're, quote unquote, I mean, in treatment for drug abuse. Once. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. just, I just bullshitted my way through it. It was stupid. <laughs> um, I, so I think, I feel like the answer is, is that, that the scheduling just isn't based on logic um, in any nope. way. And like, I'm trying to figure out what the logic is in some in it's a place a, where there isn't any. It's uh, coming from a different place in the body. It's not from the mind. It's from the heart. It's right. coming from a place of fear. Huh. That is. <laughs> it, it do, doesn't anyone ever get like questioned publicly about. I mean, you never see this brought up in the news or anything. like More that. and more. Uh, more and more. There's some great organizations, the Drug Policy Alliance, uh, various marijuana reform organizations that are starting to bring um, or have been bringing that conversation to the uh, national level for a while, although we don't see it in press conferences. We don't see our politicians getting asked these questions publicly, Never. regularly. Um, uh, presidential candidates aren't Maybe hammered like with marijuana, this question. You know, that's marijuana, that's where some, we're starting sometimes. to see something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but certainly not psychedelics. Um, certainly not starting to see that just yet, at least not at the broad reform level. Um, we are seeing it in the clinical research, and it's working there, but you don't need an act of Congress to do research, <laughs> fortunately. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, huh. Yeah, that that would be interesting to have a conference and ask Obama about the Deemsters. Um, <laughs> I, um, I, I'm so I'm curious. So, so are you guys mostly focused on MDMA? 
Yeah, that's the bulk of our focus right now. Um, not just PTSD, but other conditions. Um, we are supporting other research, sponsoring other research into ayahuasca. We've done some LSD research. Um, and a big focus right now, in addition to the research, is uh, planning our next big conference, which is happening in April of 2017, April next year. It's a oh. Psychedelic Science 2017 Oh. Um, which we're hoping is going to be the largest psychedelic conference uh, ever to take place in the U.S. Awesome. I'm hoping to make it there. I hope you can. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so so you're doing these. Uh, so you said MDMA. Are you using MDMA just for the PTSD? or? No, we're looking at some other tracks as well. Like... Yeah. Our main focus is the PTSD with the most studies going on. Um, we also have a study of MDMA-assisted therapy for social anxiety uh, in uh, adults who are on the autism spectrum. So to break that down just a little bit, mm. that's using MDMA combined with therapy to reduce um, feelings of social anxiety um, in people with Asperger's um, or on the autism spectrum. Not to cure Asperger's um, or to treat autism or anything like that, but rather to just help people with autism and Asperger's feel more comfortable uh, in social settings. Does MDMA have an effect on testosterone? It, not directly on testosterone, but on oxytocin, uh, which is another hormone. Yeah, um, the bonding. Yeah, right. the bonding trust. Right, yeah, yeah, we talked about that a fair amount. Well, I, 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 I only ask because testosterone seems to um, inhibit uh, empathy and ability to, to read um, social cues. That explains a lot. It, it would explain why males are autistic. <laughs> And, um, yeah, if it's, uh, oh man, I, I better not try to BS some jargon right now because, um, neuroscience is a bit of a weak suit for me, but I, I was just reading an article about it. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, I, I, I don't even want to say, cause I'm just going to screw it up, but I read an article about testosterone inhibiting empathy, which mm. I mean. Well, yeah, it, it makes sense. Yeah. When, it explains a whole lot of things when you look around the world. It does. Empathy yeah. is exactly what we're going for um, with um, right. all of it. It's, it's, it's an element in all of the MDMA research. Yeah. So I was, I, I was just curious if because I've also anecdotally noted that um, a lot of psychonauts tend to be uh, male psychonauts tend to, I'll just say, be a bit more in touch with their feminine side or they they certainly seem to be less like macho men you know like they don't have the big egos and like they want to drive big trucks and and that sort of thing uh, thus explains uh, the attraction of bro culture towards psychedelics. <laughs> yeah, psychedelic. yeah yeah um but yeah yeah bro bros um I think bros get into psychedelics thinking it's a party drug you know and then like yeah do it at their frat or whatever, and then yeah. learn a few things about themselves, and then uh, like, ho hopefully, or, or, hopefully, or just have a horrible. I mean, sometimes you learn something about yourself, and you're like, "Oh no, I'm a frat boy. That that sucks," um, <laughs> and, and that and that can be traumatizing for people. So, how do these studies work? How do you how do you get um, how do you get participants? I mean, I guess what I'm sort of acting asking is how can i become a participant <laughs> in a study how do you go about finding participants and vetting them yeah if we had a dollar for every time yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah 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 we already would have funded the 30 million dollars um well uh, it's a careful selection process we're doing um, double blind placebo controlled research so the results have to be replicable um, and then also we want to reduce the risk as much as possible 
we're using pure MDMA, um, so the risks are minimized, uh, as opposed to, say, ecstasy and molly, um, which could contain anything and often do. Um, uh -huh. So people call us. Um, they get into a waiting list for the study. Just to give you some idea of the size of these waiting lists, um, for our completed um, veteran study in South Carolina, which treated 24 subjects, um, all of whom were military veterans or police officers or firefighters uh, with PTSD, um, 24 spots in the study, uh, 1,000 people on the waiting list uh, mm. to get in. So the need is crushing. It's literally, we can't handle the phone calls. Right. Um, we're going to be opening up these larger studies uh, next year, the phase three studies, and those will treat 200 to 400 more. But again, that's just a small drop in the bucket. Um, we're going to unroll to like hundreds, probably you know, tens or hundreds of thousands more people once it's approved. So the need is severe. We um, exclude people with pre-existing cardiovascular conditions uh, or neurological conditions, or like we talked about. What kind of neurological conditions? Um, Anything that the physicians involved in the study think might interfere um, or make the um, MDMA more risky. Um, don't know what those might be. Um, but they are listed in our study protocol. We keep all of our documents mm -hmm. um, online on maps.org, um, all of our study protocols with our inclusion and exclusion criteria. Hmm. Um, do, you, do you know... So are these people... Can, do you know if they can be on other prescriptions at the time? Uh, um, they do have to go off of their uh, like current medications. They have to go off their antidepressants. I see. Antidepressants can interfere with the activity of MDMA, as in make it less effective. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've heard that, um, that people can have bad responses on, on DMT as well if they're on antidepressants. I mean, I don't yeah. The truth is we we, we don't know and nobody really knows right, right, how right. these drugs are working in the brain. Right. I mean, yeah. no one knows how antidepressants are working in the brain. And so it's like there's just much to be studied. Or um, whether. Yeah, yeah. But we we've had a podcast on that and they're pretty much a placebo. Well they harm you, so placebo is very effective. We cannot underestimate that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny. I I like the idea of I, I mean, I feel like life is just picking your best placebos. Um, That's great. But um, I <laughs> I like the idea that someone would come in and be like, okay, you're either going to be getting MDMA or the placebo, and you won't know which one. It's not like a, it's not like a blood thinner or something like that where you may not be cut. Either, either you trip or you don't trip. Like, you're going to know. Yeah, with MDMA, most of the time, <laughs> well... You'd be surprised. Sometimes they don't know. Sometimes expectation goes a long way, and especially for really? people um, who are MDMA naive, um, they do get it wrong. Um, often they guess, um, which is to say the researchers guess. Whether Someone that's never, wrong. ever done a psychedelic before. That's what you're saying by naive? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's right. That's right. So sometimes they don't get it right. We were also using a different way of doing placebos for some uh, previous trials, using active placebos. So rather than giving somebody zero milligrams MDMA, we might give them 40 milligrams MDMA. <clears throat> we stopped doing that, and we probably won't be doing that in the phase three trials. Um, some participants came back, and they said that those lower doses of MDMA were too unsettling <clears throat> for them. Mm. So 40 milligram dose or a 75 milligram dose for some people might bring up um, a lot of emotional issues without the 
added clarity that the additional um, MDMA might provide. Um, so without that full experience, they might bring it up without having the resources to kind of deal with it. That's interesting. Yeah. For, for other people, those low doses work just great. One, one veteran left the study after a 75 milligram dose, um, didn't have PTSD anymore and went off all of his prescription medications and that was enough for him. Um, I, you'd yeah. think he'd just stay in the studies for, <laughs> for, he was good. for kicks. He went off MDMA and everything else. Huh. Didn't go back. Um, yeah, that's interesting. It's like, uh, cause like DMT, they, you know, they, they say you need like three big rips basically if you're doing it recreationally. And, and the second one is like very intense and scary. And if you don't go forward, like, if you get that third one, you like break through to this clear space. But the second one is just, if you stop there, it's really confusing mm -hmm. and like mm -hmm. kind of scary. It's just like a bad mushroom trip or something. Yeah. We're finding out how to use these things huh. still. That's, that's interesting that unlike, cause there's probably not a lot of other drugs out there where if you do too little of it, it's worse than if you had done none. You know, although, you know, it varies widely and I'm starting to, you know, even, even doubt whether there's a solid answer that applies right. to everybody, um, yeah. especially with microdosing, um, the, this, this, this phenomenon that's happening now with people using small doses. Yeah, of let's talk a little bit about <coughs> microdose. Yeah. So, so what's, so what's a small dose and, and aren't people mostly doing this with LSD? Yeah. Yeah. With LSD and psilocybin mm. is what I've, I've, mm. I've heard mostly, um, microdose of MDMA. haven't heard much about that. Mm. Um, uh, but yeah, microdosing. So that's like uh, 10 micrograms uh, about of LSD. Um, What's a regular? Regular, usually around 100. Okay. Uh, so about a tenth of a dose is um, what we're hearing about. Uh, there's a researcher, Jim Fadiman, um, who lives in Palo Alto uh, near Stanford University, who's uh, collecting uh, some uh, number of case reports of people who are microdosing all over the world. And he has over 100 of these now. Um, people experimenting with taking varying levels of small doses of LSD and psilocybin to enhance their creativity, to prolong their workday, to encourage interpersonal connection, promote innovation, do mm. coding, um, mm. you know, these kinds of professionally advantageous uh, Yeah, so, skills, so you're you know. doing a, a tenth of a hit of LSD and like just going to work. And, yeah, I can't imagine it personally myself but a lot of people do it i like to get as far away from computer screens as possible yeah, when yeah. under the influence but some people just really like to get get into those spreadsheets you know yeah, yeah. going, going <laughs> working on something like i want to be looking at trees i took i took acid one time before performing just to see if it was as bad as an idea as i thought it would be and it absolutely was it, it, it my show was fine i didn't tell anyone and like i could do my jokes and whatnot but it's just like I'm at work right now. Why yeah. did I do this? Like, this is when I should be writing and reflecting on life and looking at nature <laughs> and learning about myself. And instead yeah. I'm doing this stupid, like, routine of, of my, you know, it's just like, I hated it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think it depends on uh, whether but you're... I didn't do a microdose either. It wasn't a microdose. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> just a say, mega dose. I think it depends how, how, how you know, totally into it you really are. Yeah, yeah. Like if you really, if your body wants to be there and your mind wants to be there, then you just love you know, spreadsheets. You know, it's probably great. You know, probably yeah. LSD is going to increase that feeling. 
if there's part of you that doesn't want to be there, yeah, your body's yeah, uncomfortable yeah. or whatever, right. um, or you're tired, you know, it's going to make it more difficult. Yeah, I, I mean, psychedelics just tend to um, exaggerate whatever emo- emotional yeah. state that you're, yeah. you'll have, whether it's happy or sad. And I, I, I find that, I mean, well, as I become more experienced, I feel like I have more balance, but I feel like, especially in some higher doses, it can be like a little bit of a roller coaster ride sometimes. Like when people talk about a bad trip, which I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about what a bad trip is. Absolutely. Um, I, cause I've had this difficult trips. I've never, I, I mean, I've had, I've had maybe one trip that I'd even consider bad. And I just took like a foolish amount of mushrooms and, and didn't eat all day and stuff like that. And it, and it was like 10 minutes of horror, but only 10 minutes. Um, but feels like an hour though. Feels felt <laughs> like a very, I was worried. I was like stuck like that. Yeah, um, been there. <laughs> but um, I, uh, when I feel like I'm having a difficult time, like the, the most difficult time I've ever had on, say, mushrooms, maybe lasts for like 30 minutes or an hour. It's not even like the majority of the trip. I guess some people maybe then carry that with them. I think a lot of people get anxious when the body reacts and thinks it's been poisoned and you get nauseous and then that anxiety flares up and there's an adrenaline response and your body's trying to take care of you. There's a guy in your head pulling all these alarms that don't need to be pulled. He's an important guy. He needs to be there, you know, but he needs to take the day off when you're doing mushrooms. And, (laughs) uh, and, and a lot of people think that's like what the trip is, you know, in the beginning, if they've never done it before. And then I feel like they kind of carry that into the trip with them sometimes kind of dwell on that. So I can see that. It's just not been my experience at all. Yeah, you know, you and probably a lot of people, you know, I know I have, you know, been really blessed to have the resources um, of education and um, support, Mm -hmm. um, you know, when experimenting with these things. Um, But a lot of people don't. And they get to that place where it's just them and themselves pulling all the levers in their heads. uh, And they don't find a way out and um, that's very scary for them and they don't think they're going to get out. So what are the resources that are available for people who don't know, who haven't read extensive amounts of Alan Watts or Timothy Leary and right. don't have uh, support around them? Right, right. Without a yeah. trip setter. And then they have like an idiot friend that's trying to fuck with them because they think they're funny or something like that. Yeah. And this is, um, you know, I, I love, you know, working on my computer and doing the spreadsheets and sending out emails and, you know, promoting maps in the digital space and the media. But, uh, you know, really, I think one of my most powerful experiences working with maps has, has been actually being at Burning Man um, with the Zendo Project, uh, which is maps' uh, uh, psychedelic harm reduction mm-hmm. project, which we bring to festivals um, all over the world. Um, our biggest presence is always at Burning Man, and we'll be there this year. Uh, with uh, two different locations, um, hopefully helping hundreds of people. Um, just uh, to see um, you know, people coming in from whatever crazy night they might have had at the festival um, on however many micrograms of LSD, or maybe they don't even know what they took, um, separated from their friends, maybe they didn't bring water, they're cold. Right. Um, and then to um, see them come into this uh, sanctuary space, which we've set up with trained volunteers and water and soft places and relative quiet um, people who are there to just essentially sit with people 
um, hold their hands if they want mm-hmm. and just talk with them and tell the drug effects. If they want. Just the if, if they want, will not be compelled into a conversation. I'm holding your hand, damn it. No. Yeah, no, it's definitely not hand. therapy. Um, but um, it is compassionate support. Yeah. It's having a, present, a, a presence there mm-hmm. with you. And um, we've helped hundreds and hundreds of people um, just get through these experiences, hopefully minimizing the, the, the trauma of having a difficult experience. What's that kind of protocol like? Um, so you say there's trained people, like how, how are you training? Them? Yeah, well, we have a, um, a number of principles. We have four principles around which the Zendo project is based. Um, we actually have a, a new website, um, zendoproject.org, um, that I really encourage you to check out. Um, so our four principles are to create a safe space for somebody who's who's having a difficult psychedelic experience. Um, make sure they know they're safe. Um, make sure it is safe. You're not going to get interrupted. Um, another one is sitting, not guiding. So providing yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a presence and a support there, not telling yes. people that they're going to be okay or like, you know, it's going to be fine. Don't worry. It's over. You'll come out of it. Think positive thoughts. Yeah, think happy thoughts. Like that's not what we're doing there. Yeah, right. Because um, when you're going through a psychedelic experience, that kind of thing isn't helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so sitting and not guiding people through the process. T- uh, related, talking through, not down. So we're not trying to reduce people's experience. We're not trying to say, hey, like, calm down, settle down, bring it down. Um, but rather, what are you feeling now? Do you want to talk? Oh, I totally can see how you'd feel that way, you know, identifying. Mm. This is the opposite of what law enforcement and hospitals do. Um, so they just like will lock you down literally physically um, or drug you um, if you're out of control due to a psychedelic experience. They're trying to turn that down and turn that process off. But what that really does is just lock this intense psychological process that's happening deeper. Is that just they just haven't had the training? Or? That's exactly it. They haven't had the training. Hospitals are medical. They see everything as a medical problem. Right. Cops see everything as a criminal problem. Right. Um, Zendo Project sees psychedelic emergencies as a human problem. Mm. So we address the humans there. And then the last one <clears throat> is just that difficult is not the same as bad. And this is, I think, kind of what you started out saying, right? It's, right. Like, it's like, it's not really a bad trip. It's a difficult trip. A bad trip is one that lands you in the hospital or the emergency room or does some irreparable damage. Yeah, yeah. Difficult trip, you know, a lot of things are difficult. Going through the death of a family member is yeah. difficult. A change of a relationship is difficult. Right. Changing your diet is difficult. A lot of difficult things. Yeah. It doesn't mean they're bad. They're also learning experiences. So that's yeah, also yeah. what we try to teach. Yeah. Um, I I like this sitting not guiding the most. I, I did um I did one well, it was two in a row, but I I did two ayahuasca ceremonies. I and I had done lots of DMT before that. And for the listeners, ayahuasca has uh, a DMT sack of ingredient and DMT is just smoke it, it's fast, ten minutes <laughs> long trip. Um ayahuasca's longer like four or six hours something like that um and so you often like go in this room and there's shaman and everything i did not enjoy having a shaman at all maybe Mm. i've just tripped so many times that's like i just don't want people telling me how to enjoy my psychedelics like i just wanted to go outside and like sit and write my thoughts and just have my own thing like i wasn't in danger i wasn't i the music was fine enough i didn't care to listen to 20 people puking around me it just like was not my scene it totally makes way. sense it, it doesn't always always mesh 
Yeah, psychedelics are, have been used across all sorts of cultures mm-hmm. for a long time. And um, ayahuasca developed in a culture that was in the jungle, that was Amazonian, um, in um, small villages and communities that were um, very interconnected um, with strong religious authority figures as part of them. And that's how ayahuasca came about and came, became part of indigenous spiritual practices. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as Americans, maybe we're not as enthusiastic about having a strong spiritual figure. Right. Um, you know, just from our conditioning and from what we're, we're, we're used to. Um, right. So, um, in and I, and I'm like, I, I'm just, I just did a episode on personality I'm, and I'm, uh, I rate low in agreeability. I'm a cynical argumentative person. And, um, <laughs> that counterindicated with Iowa. <laughs> yeah. It, it, well, so it was like, I mean, I, I had a, I had a pretty strict, um, strict ish religious upbringing um, that I still have some, you know, bitterness about uh, that I've had to make peace with. And, um, uh, whatever, it wasn't nothing. It was just like I just didn't ever buy into it and stuff. And it always seemed like it's just reminiscent. Of, I remember when I was a kid and I'd look at church and everyone like saying, saying the same thing all the time, like not even thinking about what they're saying and just like repeating these words. And they seemed kind of meaningless. And, and it like really scared me a lot. Like everyone seemed like, and so I'm just so averse to any kind of church-like setting like i have a hard time at weddings of like great friends of mine i have a hard time like just being in a church in general so that was like i think it was weighing on me a little bit too similar it was a little too churchy for me um but i think some people would absolutely love that and 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 certainly i think something like ayahuasca isn't something you can just go out and do by yourself to try it out for the first time you need someone that knows what they're doing but anyway we're a ways off from that let's reel it in a little bit um i i want to uh, as we're wrapping up so so as uh, and and a a big part of first off what can people do to um contribute to this cause if this is something that uh people are listening and and they're like well that does sound the scheduling stuff does sound a little ridiculous (laughs) maybe we should do some more studies and maybe people are finding some benefits um, to this stuff and they want, and they want to support maps um, or, or Zendo. Uh, what should they do? Uh, there's lots of ways to get involved. Um, people from uh, high school students all the way up to senior government administrators. Um, there's ways for everybody to help. So first one is just learning about what we're doing. Um, we've just nipped just the absolute tip of uh, what's happening in the psychedelic research world. In this conversation, so maps.org is the first place to go. Um, sign up for our email newsletter. I send out emails a lot about stuff that's going on. Um, we're all over the social media interwebs, of course. Um, you know, we're um, fundraising a lot um, for what we're doing. We're a nonprofit. Again, no, no major pharmaceutical company or government investment so far in psychedelic therapy research. Um, so we need donations from $5 to $5 million. Um, Every tiny little bit helps a lot. Um, we also have ways to volunteer through our website. Sign up to volunteer either at MAPS, doing research, doing administration, communication, uh, or for the Zendo Project. If you're heading out to Burning Man, 
actually this year. Uh, we're uh, still looking for volunteers for the Zendo project. So if you go to zendoproject.org, you can fill out a volunteer application there um, up until uh, July 1st. So oh, we got a couple more. I would more love days. to yeah. trip sit. I, I think I like to think of myself yeah. as a good trip sitter. I mean, usually I'm doing it while I'm also tripping. But I, I think that I'd be good at it while sober as well. Um, have, have you heard of the tripsit.me or whatever? Yeah, yeah. They're doing really interesting work. Yeah. Uh, really interesting work. Um, yeah. I, I for, have, I've yeah. never looked at it, but it sounds yeah. fascinating. Yeah, for people who are uh, maybe tripping, I guess, by themselves and they have a laptop open, they can go to Tripsit and they get 24-hour uh, trip sitting and tripping advice. Um, if I need trip sitting, I'm not too close to a computer screen and probably can't sit up and engage, but um, for a lot of people... Um, that could be really useful. And that's what, that's, that's the online version essentially right, of what right, we're doing right, right. Uh, uh, with the Zendo project. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so, uh, listeners, I, I, I'm not going to harp on it at all, but you know, I've never, uh, my episodes are free. I've never asked for donate personal donations from you guys. I've never asked for money in any way. Um, but I do always encourage you to pay it forward. If you enjoy this podcast, and fans of mine have probably heard me talk a lot about psychedelics on other podcasts and probably um, know me from that as well. So this is something that you're probably passionate about. So uh, reach out, get involved, support financially, what, do whatever you can. Um, so what, what's, so you, if you guys do this big study, right? So, so what, I mean, I know what maybe the ultimate goal, but but what's what are the next steps? So so there's the study, and then you learn that it is therapeutic for this or that, whatever findings you have, PTSD or whatever it might be, um, beneficial for this. And then so is the first step to then get it descheduled because it wouldn't it, therapists wouldn't be able to use it until it's not a schedule one anymore, right? Uh, therapists should be able to use it as soon as it's approved by the FDA. The uh, descheduling um, of MDMA should happen immediately following the FDA approval. Ah, because there's still, aren't some pain pills like schedule one now? Um, they, they would be scheduled two if they have an approved medical use. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. Um, hmm. All right. That's interesting. So, and, and then, and then the hope is, is that then, and you'd be involved in possibly uh, training therapists. And yeah, training is going to be the next big thing. We're already training scores, uh, just dozens and dozens of therapists in the treatment method so we can do those phase three trials. Um, and in the meantime, um, people can get training in any sort of professional licensure um, for therapy. Um, uh, marriage and family therapists, um, nurse practitioners, um, all sorts of different professional licensures will work for it. Um, so once the FDA approves it, uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD maps will be able to train therapists um, publicly uh, in how to do the therapy. We'll also be able to sell MDMA uh, to pharmacies so they can distribute it to uh, psychedelic clinics where people can go in, receive psychedelic therapy, stay the night, Get it covered by and, insurance. And get the actual MDMA <laughs> that has been approved and is safe and doesn't have whatever other stuff. Or, I mean, you're at least uh, 
might not be safe for every everyone ever, but but you're at least going to be getting what you're what you're supposed to be. Sure getting. can talk about an exciting future for research. We just placed an order for a kilogram of pharmaceutical grade MDMA from a uh, research supplier in the UK. So we'll be getting that soon. That cost us about four hundred thousand uh, dollars. We've raised about one hundred eighty five thousand dollars worth of that so far. Oh, that's going to be a wonderful day when that arrives. <laughs> um, I, uh, I mean, uh, listeners, please go go to Maps and check out more because this really is just the tip of the iceberg of of all of the information that's out. This is I didn't prepare for this interview in any way, and I I've been taking a few notes, and there's a million things that I didn't even get a chance to ask or, or talk about. So there's so much more to know. And I will be doing more podcasts like this uh, in the future, um, especially thanks to people uh, like Brad who are helping me find um, legitimate uh, and interesting uh, researchers and other people in the field. So uh, thank you, Brad Burge, for joining me. Thank you, Shane. It's been great. And thank you, listeners, for being curious. You guys are the best. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Speaking of psychedelics, I'm excited to announce that my show, A Good Trip with Shane Moss, about psychedelics, uh, is uh, the tour that I'm doing with it for the fall is really coming along. We can't uh, announce all the dates yet because we're still locking a few things up, and we keep on adding cities all of the time. It started out, we were shooting for like 30 cities, and now it's looking closer to like 50. It's going to be going through at least December we're adding more venues all the time. I'm, each night I'm going to be in a new city, maybe one day off a week on off nights like Monday where it's harder to get people out. And um, and the show's just incredible. It's the best act that I've ever put together. Not not to brag or anything, it's, it's, it's more that I'm excited that I'm able to explore bigger ideas um, with it. It's more of a one-man show. It's an hour and a half long as opposed to a regular uh, headlining set, which is 45 minutes. The people that are showing up are really thoughtful. Um, and so I'm able to go a little deeper and it doesn't need to be just like set up, punch, set up, punch. And so uh, much bigger, more interesting ideas, very informative show. It's like a, a third stand up jokes about psychedelics, a third, uh, funny stories about my experiences and a third Ted talks. And people are going crazy for it. It's really informative. People uh, want to talk with me afterwards. And um, it's really creating some interesting conversations. And so because I'm working so hard on that, one of the things that I'm doing is I'm lining up tons and tons of promo on um, especially big podcasts that I'll be doing that will be coming out right before, like in September uh, sometime, a whole bunch of big ones confirmed already and um it's gonna be huge but it's also a ton and ton of work and so i'm taking a week off of the podcast next week i have a couple in the bank i um was debating whether to take a week off or not but this time of year is so hard to get academics because it's summertime and um and school's out people are away on vacation so i'm spending five times longer than usual having to reach out and find guests and lock up dates. And so it's just not the best use of my time uh, right now. 
Um, it will just be so much easier once school's in. And so I do have some podcasts in the bank, and I just want to. I just didn't want to get myself in a position where I was going to have to take two or three weeks off because too much stuff is coming up with this good trip tour. So we're just going to take one week off, and my business partner, Ramin Nazer, uh, which you can check out all of his amazing work at Ramin Nazer, R-A-M-I-N-N-A-Z-E-R.com. Um, you can see he does all the all of the artwork. Uh, he, he made the logo for the podcast, and we... Um, he's, he's helping me. We're going to put together a separate tab on my website for the tour and a bunch of other stuff like that, that he is helping me with. And, um, so yeah, I just need a week off coming up. Um, I'm not sure what the next week is going to be. I already have one. I'm recording one today with a botanist. I have, uh, one recorded already with this place, Chimp Haven, um, that, that takes in retired, um, research chimps and cares for them. It's like a retirement facility um, that uh, keeps chimps alive for about 20 years longer than than uh, than their life expectancy is in the wild and really cool place. And so, yeah, just, just one week off is all for very good reasons. This, this tour that I'm putting together is going to be a big... Uh, uh, is going to be very successful and it's and it's going to be a big big boost for the podcast um a lot of people are so engaged and excited and they they start listening to the podcast after seeing this show and with all the promotion that i'm going to be doing for that tour i'll also be plugging this podcast so we're going to get way way more listeners Things are really, really starting to come together, which is so good. Summer is a rough time for stand-up comics because everyone's on vacation and has nice warm weather and isn't going into comedy clubs. So um, so there's not tons of good paying work out there. And that's the money that I use to um, put together this nonprofit show. So bear with me with one week off and we'll be back uh, the following week with more wonderfulness and more announcements with um, what will be happening with the tour. Um, but coming up, I will be in, um, in Denton, Texas, Austin, Texas, um, um, Indianapolis, I'll be in Wilmington, be doing another live podcast in Wilmington. I'll, I'll be in um, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And like I said, I hopefully in two weeks when we're back, I'll be announcing or very close to announcing all or most of the dates for my good trip tour for the fall and um, the... If you've been waiting to see me live, the chances are are pretty good that I'll be somewhere, either in your city or nearby. So, uh, really looking forward to that. So excited. And thank you guys for all the support. I've been getting more and more people, listeners of the podcast, coming out to my shows, uh, which is huge. Um, So, 
yeah, that's about it. I'm uh, I'm excited to talk to you guys next. I should have a lot more news for you in a couple weeks. Um, those of you that listen all the way to the end, you know, you're my favorite. Thanks for supporting, and I'll talk with you soon. I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. (laughs) Suicide Buddies. (laughs) That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century, Mm -hmm. and he, uh, one of the reasons... It's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. <laughs> He's like, I mean, if you yeah. lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> 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 That's like literally what happened to Batman. <laughs> he literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm a, I'm I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a rich... I don't know what you want from me. And uh, my, and my a... girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My. Uh, my... <laughs> <laughs>